Hello. Good to see you. So close and personal. Um, my name is Brian. If we haven't met, um, we'd love to get to know you more. Um, your little handout thing says that um, today we are in a series called Bad Theology, um, but that is incorrect. Uh, this <laughs> this uh, sermon will not be a bad theology sermon. It may be a bad sermon, but um, <laughs> that remains to be seen. Um, instead, we're going to be talking about something more related to our season of Advent, um, more related to the theme of Christ's coming into the world and the incarnation and the beginning of his ministry and what it means for the world. And in particular, the, uh, the thing that I want to talk about is related to how Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, styled his ministry as a new year of jubilee. Okay? So in order to get at this idea and to understand how it might impact our lives, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the... Um, into the obscure passages of the Old Testament that talk about this <clears throat> and kind of work our way through uh, a passage in the prophets and then ultimately to Jesus' ministry to try to understand what he is doing here. Um, so before we do this, though, let's, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. <clears throat> Lord, I um, come to you wanting to hear from you today. Uh, for myself, Lord, I need to hear what you have to say through your scriptures and by your spirit. And um, so I invite you, Lord, to speak and uh, that you would, uh, you would help all of us to hear. And I especially pray that you would help us to have a new sense of the possibilities, um, the possibility of what you might do and expectation for what you might do in our lives, um, even here and even today. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have a Bible or an app or a handout, um, you can turn to the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. Leviticus 25. Um, I'll be, so we have a small portion of it printed in the handout, but I'll be talking about a bit more than just that portion. So in um, the Old Testament, right, in the first five books of the Old Testament, we have a story about how the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, but then God brought them out of Egypt under the leadership of a man named Moses, and then he met with them um, in the Sinai Desert on a mountain. And on that mountain, he gave them a set of instructions that would uh, create a situation in which he could actually dwell with them and go with them as a people, specially blessing them and allowing them to be a blessing to uh, the rest of the people of the earth. Now, as part of this uh, set of instructions, uh, God set up an interesting kind of calendrical cycle, okay? And that calendrical cycle included a number of points um, working on multiples of seven, right? So we have a week, right? Six days of work and a seventh, which is a Sabbath 
or Shabbat, right, in Hebrew. On this Sabbath day, the people would rest from their work. They would trust God to provide for them, and they would, you know, consider the things of the Lord. Now, um, every seven years, after they were to enter the land that God had promised them, there was going to be another Shabbat. Six years of sowing and reaping from the land, and then on the seventh, the land itself would have a rest or a Sabbath, in which they wouldn't sow or reap, but they would actually uh, continue to eat a bumper crop that was supposed to be given to them, provided by the Lord in the sixth year. This uh, in in uh, in Hebrew is called a Shabbat Shabbaton, <laughs> which I've heard some people translate as a super Sabbath, which I think is a great translation. Okay, but it gets even bigger than that, because what we're thinking about today is something that happens every seven times seven years. In other words, on the 49th to 50th year of the calendrical cycle, they would have, or were supposed to have, though there's not much indication that they actually did this very much um, in the actual history of Israel, they were supposed to have what is called in the Bible a jubilee. Okay, or a yovel. It means something related to um, like a ram's horn. Okay? So let's read what was supposed to happen on this jubilee year. <clears throat> so Leviticus 25, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then... You shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. This fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the produce of the field. So what's supposed to happen on this seven times seven year, the 49th to 50th year in this calendar? Well, on the seventh month of that year, on the tenth day of the month, which... Uh, this is very, help, very helpfully reminds us, is the Day of Atonement, which is the, in some ways the highest festival day of the ancient Israelite calendar, right? When they would uh, pass their sins off on sacrificial animals and uh, confess all of the sins of the people to be covered by the Lord. On that day, they would blow a horn in all of the parts of the land, right? So, I mean, think like ram's horn, right? Like, right? <laughs> it's amazing. This would have been awesome, right? <laughs> if they actually did this, right? Um, so you're supposed to blow this horn, and then what happens? Well, we begin a year in which all of the land, like in the every seven years, is left to, to have a rest. But also that people... Who, are, uh, who have had to sell their lands, their ancestral property, 
that had been given to them by God as an allotment in the land that they had, the land of Canaan that they had gone into. Had, sell, had had to sell that because of circumstances that had led them into poverty, would have their lands restored to them, just given back. And they could go back and live on them. And people who had had to even sell themselves into a kind of debt servitude because of the circumstances of their lives leading them into a cycle of poverty would be released to go back to that original property, property that they owned. So all of this is outlined in the rest of Leviticus 25. So we have three circumstances <clears throat> that I'll just briefly outline for you that was supposed to happen in this year. Okay? The first is, right, uh, as, as, as they blow the horn and they proclaim this release, right, is what it says, or proclaim liberty. Um, number one, if someone becomes poor and sells their land, there is a provision that they can buy it back at any time. Okay, that's the first thing. Okay, so this is unrelated to the Jubilee, but this is what Leviticus says. If you have to sell your land because you're poor, you or a kinsman who is a redeemer can redeem that land or buy it back. You always have that right to do that, even if the other person wants to keep it, right? But if you can't buy it back or a kinsman cannot buy it back, in the Jubilee year, you just get it back. Second situation. If someone has to sell a house, okay, let's say you have a house, the same system of being able to buy it back if you can get the money or a relative can get the money, you have that right to buy that house unless, interestingly, it's in a walled city, which uh, we can talk about that later, all right? Um, but if, uh, if you cannot, Again, when the Jubilee comes, you get it back. Third situation. Let's say that you have to sell your land and your property to help you get out of your, your, your poverty, and you can't buy it back, and no kinsman can buy it back. Um, and you're in a situation where you even have to sell yourself into a servitude because of maybe debts that you owe or needs that you have, so that you're working for someone else now as a kind of uh, permanent servant. On the year of Jubilee, as the release is proclaimed, you get to go free. And not only do you get to go free, you get reinstated to your property. So what's the point of all of this? This, you know, this release, the, the Yovel, the Jubilee, the ram's horn thing. Well, the point of it seems to be it's, it's supposed to be uh, an economic reset, right? So that no one who has been sucked down into a cycle of poverty, right, has been in some way imprisoned by their circumstances or choices or whatever, um, will be so stuck there that they can never get out and their children and children's children will never be able to get out. In other words, every 49th year, this reset happens so that they are released from the cycle that they have been pulled into. That's pretty cool, right? And pretty radical. <laughs> like, so, you know, we should, we should think about that. Um, all right. So that's Leviticus 25. Now, Let's move on now 
to a passage in the book of Isaiah. Okay? So we're jumping forward, obviously, in time now from the Sinai Desert and this you know, legislation that's given to Moses for them to enact in the land. Now in Isaiah chapter 61, the people of Israel have been in the land for many, many years, but have not um, been faithful to worship God and to follow the instructions that he gave them in this, um, in this time in the wilderness in Sinai. And in fact, after many warnings and many second chances, they have been taken into exile by a foreign power, the, the foreign power of Babylon. And so many people have gone uh, into exile and are, are living in Babylon um, when we come to the second half of the book of Isaiah. And so uh, I want to read chapter 61, and I want us to see how now the Jubilee year from Leviticus becomes now a symbol of eschatological hope for the people of Israel, and particularly of the hope of return from exile. Okay? I mean, um, I heard someone say, um, or was reading someone who was talking about how, in some ways, the Jubilee year is inherently um, eschatological, right? What do I mean by eschatological? I mean, it has to do with future hope, right? Because if you think about it, the Jubilee coming every 49 years, it would only come once in someone's lifetime, right? And you can see how if you've been, uh, you know, pulled into some situation of poverty or, or, or some situation where you feel like you can't get out, the Jubilee would stand there in the future as sort of this symbol of hope, right? And you can see how easily it would start to become now a broader symbol of hope uh, for other circumstances as well. So let's read this in Isaiah 61. Um, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, of the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So this passage speaks in first person of someone who will be anointed by the Spirit of God and sent with a particular commission, right? Now, it turns out um, that this does not seem to be, in my view, this does not refer to the prophet himself, right? That God has sent him and anointed him. But it refers to a future messianic figure. And one of the reasons that I say that is because of this idea of being anointed, right? Uh, the word Messiah, right? Mashiach means one who is anointed. And here it talks about how um, the, the prophet is projecting, right, in the first person voice, the, the mission of someone who has been anointed 
and um, has the Spirit of God coming upon him uh, to do this thing. Um, Okay, what is this thing that he's supposed to do? Well, he's going to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim a release to the captives, and an opening to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of God's favor and vengeance. Now, I don't know if you noticed in here anything that might have reminded you of Leviticus 25. Anything? What? You can shout it out. Liberty. In fact, that phrase, proclaim liberty, right, is exactly the same phrase uh, that describes what you're supposed to do when you blow the ram's horn on the jubilee you know, year, on the Day of Atonement. You're supposed to proclaim liberty in all of the land, right? It's a very actually kind of specific phrase that you don't find really anywhere else, okay? So it's clearly referencing back to this jubilee thing. Anyone, anything else that you saw in there that might relate to the Jubilee as we've seen in Leviticus 25. I don't know if you noticed this idea that uh, he's supposed to proclaim the year of God's favor, right? That also uh, seems to be a very clear, clear reference to this Jubilee year, okay? And then, of course, the idea that it's directed toward um, people who are poor, people who are captive, and people who are bound or imprisoned, right? In other words, the focus is on those who are stuck in a cycle of something that they can't get out of. And this person is supposed to come and proclaim release for them. Now, the thing that we have to understand, though, is how is this symbol of jubilee now being used in this context. What kind of release are we thinking about? And here I would make just three brief points. Okay? First, the text says that this, this proclamation of release is going to be for the benefit of the captives. Right? He says, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, that's an interesting phrase, right? What, what, what do you mean? I mean, in, our, in English, as in Hebrew, the word captive um, it doesn't really re- refer to people necessary, necessarily who are like, um, well, it refers to like, you know, people who are like military captives or, or people who maybe have been taken in a like power move, right? It's similar in Hebrew, right? And actually in the Hebrew Bible, this word captive is primarily the word that's used for the exiles who have been taken from, from Judah, right, by the imperial power of Babylon into a new land, right? So that's one thing we should think about, right? This captive language is actually telling us now it's applying the jubilee thing to the problem of the exile. All right, a second thing that you should notice is that among the many metaphors used in this larger section of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 66, that are used to like describe the situation of Israel in exile and God's relation to Israel. One metaphor is this idea of debt slavery. Okay, that the people of Israel have been taken into exile, um, imagined as being taken into slavery because of their debt, and the debt here is particularly the debt of their sins or their transgressions. So, for example, he says in um, Isaiah 50. 
And to which of my creditors was it to whom, I, to whom I sold you off? You were only sold for your sins and your mother for her crimes. Right. So Israel is in captivity or in exile because of the debt of their sins. And then third, um, this passage imagines that the captive exiles will return to their ancestral land, the land of Judah, right? And be planted there again and rebuild all of the, the cities and things that have been devastated, right? You see that at the end of the passage. <clears throat> and what is it in the Jubilee, right? Not only are debt slaves or debt servants released, but what else happens in the Jubilee? People who have lost their land are able now to return to it. It becomes their own property again. So you see here how the Jubilee as a concept now becomes a symbol of this hope of return from exile for those who were in captivity. All right. Now let's jump to our last passage. Okay? Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Now, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 is significant, especially for us as we're thinking about Advent. I don't know if you <clears throat> remember what happens in the Gospel of Luke, but in the first um, two chapters, it describes the birth of Jesus, right? In the third chapter, we have the ministry of John the Baptizer, who comes to prepare the way uh, for the Messiah or for Jesus. And then... Uh, at the end of John the Baptizer's ministry, Jesus comes to him and is baptized by him in the Jordan River. And when that happens, what comes out of heaven? The Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes and rests upon Jesus. Right? God says that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? And then we get to the end of chapter 4. Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he begins his ministry. All right? So the, 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 thing, the episode we're going to read now is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. How is Jesus going to, to style what it is that he's doing in the world now that he's been commissioned, the Spirit of God is on him, he's gone through you know, this experience in the wilderness, he's going to start now publicly uh, acting, proclaiming, his messianic role? Well, let's check it out. Um, so Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It's interesting, this is one of the sevens, right? And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now, just, I mean, imagine this, right? Uh, you know, there was, no, there was no, like, search thing on your app, right? <laughs> you had to, like, roll the scroll <laughs> to find where it was. So he's, he, he's, he's found this place, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, in our culture, when we're about to speak, we stand up. In that culture, when they were about to speak, they sat down. Okay? So everyone is waiting. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What text did he just read? Isaiah 61, right? Which is a passage that takes the year of Jubilee and casts it as an eschatological future hope, right? And he claims that he himself is the one on whom the Spirit of God has come and who has been commissioned with this particular ministry to proclaim and enact a new year of Jubilee. Right? But now we have another transformation of this Jubilee as a symbol, right? Because it's not, of course, the literal, um, you know, I'm going to actually proclaim the year where we release you know, debt servants and we bring people back to their land and all of that. It's not that literal thing from Leviticus 25, nor is it precisely that return from exile from Isaiah 61, right? Though there are overtones of this in another way, right? But what exactly is it? Well, it's a proclaiming of a release from poverty and social exclusion, captivity and oppression that um, we're going to see him unfold in more detail in the chapters that follow this. Okay? So if we ask, what does this release look like that Jesus proclaims? All we have to do is look at what he starts to do and to say in the next couple of chapters. All right, so listen to this. In the next several chapters, Jesus, one, releases many from the power of demons. Two, heals many from physical sicknesses, including fever, skin disease, paralysis, deformity, and death itself. He raises someone back from the dead. Listen to this quote from a later chapter. It says, Now when the sun was setting, this is, he's in Capernaum, which is another town in Galilee. When the sun was setting, all those who had, uh, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. Or listen to this from chapter 6. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So that was number two. Number three, he announces to two people at least that their sins are forgiving, get forgiven, including a prostitute who was a social outcast. Number four, he gathers several social 
outcasts to be his close followers, including a tax collector and a woman who had had seven demons. And five, as an umbrella over all of this, he proclaims what he calls the good news of the kingdom of God. That is, that God's kingdom was coming in a new way to be established on earth. And when John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, however we want to call him, sends his messengers to ask Jesus if he is in fact the Christ or the Messiah that was expected, do you know what Jesus does? Listen to this. This is in chapter 7. He says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered these messengers from John the Baptizer, Go and tell John what you have seen and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. So what is Jesus doing while he's proclaiming and enacting a new age, an age of jubilee, right? An age of release for people who have been enslaved or held captive by a variety of things, whether it be enslaved and held captive by their sin, the cycle of sin and the consequences of their sin, by their past, by spiritual powers such as demons, by the circumstances of a fallen world. He is coming to them and proclaiming to them that they can be free. And then he's freeing them by the power of God. And if this is the age that Jesus begins with his ministry, this new age of jubilee, right? Um, it turns out we're living in it. That age hasn't stopped. Because Jesus has been resurrected and raised to the right hand of God, where he sits enthroned as king. And we, ha- we ourselves are his extension right, in the world. We are his body. And he has sent his spirit into the world to continue the work that he started. So it turns out that we have to remember what time it is. You know, it's not year, it's not year 40 <laughs> in, uh, in, you know, eschatological calendar. It's year 49 and 50, right? It's the, it's the year of Jubilee. So how does all of this speak to me and speak to us today. Um, as I've been thinking about that, I, I, I keep coming back to two words, which are possibility and expectation. Um, if this is indeed the era of Jubilee that has been initiated by Jesus, perhaps we should expect more out of it. <laughs> and who are we to say what is or isn't possible? Maybe some of you have been pulled down into what feels to you like prison, or you're caught in a cycle, sucked down, unable to escape. You know, maybe it's from sins that you've done in your past, or from a cycle of, or pattern of sin that you can't break. Maybe you are oppressed by demons or spiritual powers, and you can't get out. 
Maybe you, are, maybe you have physical pain or sickness. Um, or things have happened to you in this fallen world that have closed that world in around you in some way that you feel like you can't get released or break the pattern. Like those ancient Israelites, right, who were forced to sell off their lands or sell themselves into a captivity. Um, you know, I don't know what God fully will do with those things in your life. <clears throat> but I can say that Jesus claimed that he came to proclaim release, right? That he came to enact a year of jubilee. And so who knows? Maybe it's possible that you actually could be free. That he could break that cycle. That he could break you out of that prison. Don't, don't say no to that possibility. Now, I do want to just mention here, like, I don't want to steamroll the, the reality of, like, that some of you have prayed for things like that and have experienced disappointment, right? I, I don't want to come with a message that's just like, you know, victory in Jesus and there's nothing else, right? Because disappointment with God is a reality it's also a reality that sometimes God allows us to go through trials and suffering. And, you know, there's lots in the Bible about that as well. Um, but I don't want us, as we, as we accept that and recognize that, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that, um, at least according to this, this passage and this casting of the way that Jesus is working in the world, lots of things are possible. Right, and that perhaps we ought to expect more that people will be released, that you, in fact, may be released from the prison that you find yourself in. <clears throat> you know, maybe, maybe some of you are like me, and you've gotten a little bit lethargic recently and begun to lower your expectation of what God might do. I feel like that has been very true of me recently. I've been really struggling to pray recently. Um, some of that's because of a particular one-year-old named Amma, uh, who's been uh, wanting to spend time with me in the middle of the night. Um, but, um, but I do think that some of it also is because I've lost my sense of expectation. Right? I'm not praying because I don't expect that God's going to do anything. Um, and why have I lost that sense of expectation? I think because I've forgotten what time it is, <laughs> right? That we live in an age of the ministry of Jesus enacting the Jubilee year. And I've forgotten that even though he has gone away, he has left his church, his body in the world, and his spirit in the world, as he says, to actually continue the work that he started. So if Jesus was doing all this stuff, right, which is crazy. I mean, all that stuff I read you before, like, we started in chapter 4. All of that was before chapter 8, <laughs> okay? If he was doing all of that stuff, I think the expectation is that that stuff is going to continue to happen through the church and through his spirit left in the world. Lord Jesus, 
you proclaimed that the kingdom of God is here and that that was good news and if you are alive Lord and you are in fact king and if that kingdom is here Lord it is not unreasonable for us to expect for you to move in power um, Lord as you did when you were um, physically here on earth uh, healing, uh, releasing people from the power um, of demons uh, and from the cycles of their circumstances, Lord. Um, Lord, why would you not answer the prayers that have been prayed here this morning? Lord, please move in power now. Lord, encourage us by answering some of these prayers. Um, Lord, would we have stories to tell next week about how you have moved and how um, the power of this new age that we live in has, has been manifested in our own lives. And Lord, we long to be more expectant and to be more a, a conduit of your power as we are united with you and walk as your body, your hands and feet on the earth in the power of your spirit. So give us the privilege, Lord, of continuing your work as well with others around us. Give us the courage also um, to be expectant.